Hello and welcome to the Health Hacks podcast, the podcast for high-performing professional females looking for practical ways to optimize all areas of their health and wellness. At Health Hacks, we understand that as a busy female, you wear numerous hats throughout your working week. You're trying to juggle it all, while also looking to carve out time to prioritize your own goals. It's challenging. It's therefore our mission to channel your energy into the areas that are going to help give you the biggest bang for your buck, to really make significant changes to your lifestyle in the most efficient way possible. So at the moment, if you feel as though you need more energy, you want to feel more productive to improve the quality of your sleep, to lower stress, to increase confidence, to show up better in both your personal and your professional relationships, this podcast is for you. If it's time you prioritize your health, learn to fuel your body, found time for exercise, and said goodbye to fad diets and inconsistent behaviors for good, this podcast is for you. If it's time for you to step into the shoes of the high performer you know you can be, this is the right podcast for you. Join me and my guests as we take you through the Health Hacks podcast. Have you ever been advised to go gluten-free? Have you ever followed a gluten-free diet but you felt it was too restrictive to stick to long-term? Or have you ever been interested in cutting gluten from your lifestyle? If you are merely interested or indeed you are celiac, today's episode with Meg Gerber is for you. You may never have battled with gluten, but you may find that stress is the main barrier and causes you a degree of digestive discomfort, whatever that looks like from you. IBS, constipation, anything. Expect to learn in today's episode why dieting from a state of safety is the number one thing that Meg advocates to get success in bringing uh, digestive regulation. Um, why the rule of threes at mealtimes is her non-negotiable for the clients she works with. Why bitter foods can help support our digestion. And have you heard the new, the new rule, the new target? We should be aiming for 30 plants in our diet per week. True? False? I'm going to run it past Meg today. Before we go into today's episode, I want to say a huge thank you for joining me here on Health Hacks. If you do love Health Hacks and the work that we do and the episodes that we record with our guests, you can find us every single week very, very easily. If you hit the follow, subscribe button on your podcast platform of choice, you're likely listening to me on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. If you hit the follow or subscribe button there, we will arrive in your podcast inbox every single Tuesday. You never have to search for us again. And I would really appreciate it. We go higher up the ratings. We get more wonderful guests on. Fantastic win-win situation. We find more people and we spread our message about health uh, for our listeners. So if you would like to follow us, I would sincerely appreciate it. If you would like to find out more about the work that we do with our one-to-one clients, we do currently have a 14-day period, a trial period of the Lifestyle Project. We do not do Black Friday, Cyber Monday, anything along those lines. You will not find that on our, our website or as part of our coaching but we do offer 14 days completely free of the lifestyle project. So if you want to kickstart your health and well-being goals, we suggest you don't wait till January. 
it's just you take action now create those wonderful habits those foundations get the right information about where you should be putting your energy have a 30 minute diagnostic call with me tell me about your goals and we'll be able to point you in the right direction which is going to save you time effort and energy in the long run so join us on the lifestyle project absolutely free for 14 days i can't wait to meet you on the platform without further ado enjoy this week's episode with meg gerber Hello and welcome to another episode of the Health Hacks podcast. Today I'm joined by women's gut health dietitian Meg Gerber. Meg is an experienced functional medicine dietitian with the lived experience of celiac. She's a registered dietitian specializing in IBS, IBD and of course celiac and she's here joining us today on Health Hacks. Meg how are you? Hi thank you so much for having me Caroline. I'm thrilled to be here. We're absolutely thrilled to have you. And today we're going to be looking at a topic that you're particularly passionate about, Meg. I want to start first and foremost before we go into today's discussion, find out a little bit more about you, uh, your story, and how you've arrived at the work you do today with your client base. Thank you. I So to kind of take you guys back a few years, I was diagnosed with celiac disease in 2013, and that was when I was coming towards the end of my college experience and kind of, um, I'd already decided on nutrition as my major, but I wasn't really specialized or totally sure what road that would lead me down. Um, and so at the time of the diagnosis, I went through the very formal diagnosis process. I had an endoscopy, they biopsied the small intestine. And the telltale sign of celiac is that these little villi, which are the finger-like projections lining your intestines and kind of your gut lining at large, uh, look flattened like a mowed lawn. And so I came out of the procedure and they were like, you are a textbook celiac. This is very clear, like clear damage to the villi. And so at the time, um, this is now over 10 years ago, um, my doctor basically gave me a gluten-free menu, a list of gluten-free foods to eat, and was basically like, go eat gluten-free. You're going to get a hundred percent better. Good luck. And so I left that visit really feeling like actually this like new surge of, yay, I'm excited. Like, even though it's a weird to get a diagnosis and feel excited, I actually see a lot of my clients go through this where you're kind of happy that you have a solution to your years of suffering. And for me, I had many years of acid reflux. I struggled with constipation for a very long time. Um, my mom even remembers giving me like suppositories as a child. So I was just like kind of a chronic thing that I dealt with, but it, because it was so chronic, I kind of was like, that's my normal. Um, but once I started to get older, I realized like, okay, having belly pain multiple times a week and having acid reflux multiple times a week is not really quote unquote normal and how we should feel. So what was interesting is I went gluten-free after the diagnosis and uh, things kind of intermittently got a little bit better in the short term, but then I took another plunge downward and I went through a series of what I now look back on and call flares, uh, being that celiac is actually autoimmune. So most people kind of think of it like a food allergy to gluten, and it's really more an autoimmune reaction to gluten where the body attacks itself when you ingest gluten. Um, and so because of the, again, looking back, what I now know was a lot of emotional and psychological stress wrapped up into my diagnosis and how that experience affected my life thereafter. Um, 
thought loops became very damaging and very stressful. And what I mean by that is I was looping a lot of story making around, I'm not good enough. No one gets it. I'm alone in this. No one understands. I'm the only one who can figure this out. What's wrong with my body? Why aren't you getting better? What's wrong with you? Why are you getting worse again? And that thought looping can be very degrading on the physical body. And that feels a little esoteric, I think, for some people. But what I like to expand the thought process around when it comes to stress is that stress is not just physical and it's not just quote unquote work stress, which I'm sure you feel very in alignment with, with the corporate environment that you tend to coach in. Um, Stress is so much more than what we can just maybe see or name. And it can be anything from the way we talk to ourselves, from a physical stressor like over-exercising, from undernourishing and not eating enough, from not getting enough sleep, um, to simply just drinking and eating a lot and going on vacation and having things that maybe are less serving to your body at that particular season of your life. So it can show up in so many ways. And for me, a big way it showed up was fighting back on my body with my thoughts. And then in addition, physically, uh, for many years of my 20s, I did uh, things that were less supportive to my body because I was kind of fighting against it. I mentally was playing the game of, you don't have autoimmune, you're strong enough, you can go to a Barry's boot camp class, which I don't know if people in the UK are familiar. Yeah, okay. that, yep. <laughs> so I can go to Barry's boot camp, I can go to spin class, I can try this intermittent fasting, because I feel like keto and intermittent fasting was really big when I was going through that, uh, you know, even the later phases of managing this diagnosis in my late 20s. And so kind of punishing my body in certain ways, instead of honoring it and nourishing it, I was going to Barry's bootcamp was kind of my way of being in denial of the, the disease, maybe weakening me or uh, making it so I couldn't keep up with the Joneses per se. Um, and so looking back on that, I really have a lot of compassion for that version of me who just really wanted to feel normal and wanted to feel like she was like, you know, included in her community and um, didn't have to take a step back and really honor that her body needed help and it needed support and it needed compassion. And so therefore, I've become very passionate about the role of stress and how it plays uh, this deep role in our ability to heal. It's really ultimately that we aren't just clinical pieces of textbook paper when we're learning about a gut condition. We are a human. And so I always like to think about what's the environment of the body that I'm putting a supplement into? What is the environment of the body that I'm putting, say, a diet recommendation into? Because I may be telling someone to go gluten-free, and if this person has uh, a stress bucket, per se, that's overflowing, and that's going to add another stressor, that's not supportive, and I'm not doing my due, due diligence as a clinician. So um, this, this element of overwhelm that can build up in someone who has you know, a chronic GI condition and has stress associated with it, sometimes going down a healing journey is stressful to them. So I like to really try to take that healing journey that many of my clients are trying to navigate by themselves and trying to self-sleuth and honor that them handing some of that over to me and us being in partnership in their healing journey actually helps lessen the stress in many cases to kind of remind them, 
you know, you know, your body best, you are the expert of your body. So I want you to communicate that to me, but me having my expertise in the gut healing space, this partnership can be really beautiful. And in fact, healing for your mental state that you're handing some of that over to me. And I'm then navigating for you. I'm sleuthing this for you, knowing that you are fully participatory and you do have to show up for the work in some capacity. Um, but for me, nervous system regulation tools like mindfulness and breath were a path I started to go down. Once I started to cultivate some awareness in my own journey with celiac, that my lack of knowing how to properly breathe and the amount of tension that I was holding in my low belly, which was really told to me by an acupuncturist uh, many years ago, he was like, you have total stagnancy in this area. This is not moving. You do not know how to breathe. And I was like, excuse me, sir. I know how to breathe. I'm breathing right now. I was being kind of a sassy girl, but the reality was I really didn't know how to properly breathe. I was holding my breath and holding my belly in most of the day. And so relearning that process through finding yoga and finding deeper meditation study. Um, I now, what I say is gently force all of my clients into doing that work uh, while we're working on supplements, testing their gut, testing their hormones, because it has to be both. It has to be both of these things. I deeply believe that. But we're so conditioned to think it's only the the one, the one that is go to the doctor, get the cheat sheet on here are the gluten-free foods take yep. this away get on with your life and we're also told we'll do all this testing we'll find out exactly what's going on and we'll deal with that one component whereas your approach totally. makes so much more I love what you said about looking at the environment that you're putting that into or the the environment and the environment as a whole you don't just mean the body do you, you mean the the space the person's in where they're in in their their life their headspace their chapter everything that's included in this it's not just this is what's going on with you physically these are supplements you should take. Good luck. Exactly. And ultimately what I mean by that is we want to acknowledge, and anytime I start with a client, does that person feel safe? Is that body in a state of safety recognition or is it in a state of lack of safety recognition most of the time where it's living in fight or flight or freeze sympathetic tone mode uh, because we heal and we properly digest, absorb our nutrients in the state of safety. And so just simply for a lot of my female clients under eating or skipping breakfast or waiting all morning and just having caffeine actually creates a lot of lack of safety in the body. Yeah. And would I be right in saying, I don't want to make it so simple that it does it in injustice, but would I be right in saying it doesn't really matter what we do in terms of nutritional changes, we're not going to get the full impact unless we're in that safety space. Mm. Barriers up. Yeah, I do think, I mean, I can speak to my N equals one experience myself in my healing journey and in what I see in my clients that you can give the same supplement protocol to somebody who has overgrowth in the gut and it can have two different manifestations depending on the season of life they're in. And what I mean by that is I took supplements for SIBO for overgrowth in the gut many years ago when I was in a very high state of stress and it did next to nothing versus many years later, once I brought on some level of safety regulation tools, yes, it had a totally different manifestation. So I think you're right on the money with saying that. Let's strip it right back then, because I don't think it will become, it will be new information 
to a lot of listeners of this podcast, I know we've certainly touched on it on previous episodes, about the connection between our brain, our gut, stress, and our gut. But I wonder if we could start at the very beginning and explore mm-hmm. the relationship a little bit more between stress and the gut. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the deepest connection from the gut and the brain is via the vagus nerve. So the longest cranial nerve in your body that actually picture it like roots on a tree, it's innervating into many areas of the gut, the intestines. So that's a direct link that we have all the way from the brain down to the gut. And what studies have shown us is that we actually have more communication from gut up to brain rather than brain to gut. There still is some level of bidirectionality, but what I mean by that is the state of your microbiome has a deeper impact on the brain. So what's interesting there is taking care of the gut and healing the gut in some capacity, which is obviously a very broad statement, but that could be improving low good gut bacteria, which is something I test for. If someone has low commensals, low good gut bacteria, that can play a really big role on the mood and how that affects neurotransmitter production, because we're making 80 to 90% of our serotonin in the gut and then feeding that back up on the impacts of our mood via the brain. So there's also this component of the immune system in the gut as well. The gut associated lymphoid tissue, the GALT, we have about 70% of our immune system in the gut. And so that will play a role too in your mood, how you're feeling. I know for myself, like when I get sick with something, I just mood wise feel lower. So there's a lot there in terms of that direct connection and taking care of both is very important. It's interesting that studies with concussions, traumatic brain injuries, uh, we find that there's a very deep impact on the gut microbiome there as well in terms of like cases of IBS coming out of traumatic brain injury. I, I've seen that in my practice. I think that mostly has to do with the dysregulation of that vagus nerve, because what can happen in states uh, where someone's been exposed to uh, trauma, whether it's been physical injury trauma, psychological, emotional trauma, we can get this dig- dysregulation of the vagus nerve where you can get stuck in the dorsal side, which is that like danger recognition side versus the ventral side, which is more of that safety recognition. And so um, oftentimes clients who are coming to see me, I Again, I don't have like a physical system where I can test and say, yep, you're stuck in the dorsal side, but it's something you can kind of pick up on in the sense of like, what traumas has this person been exposed to and how safe does this person feel? Um, That's something where toning the muscle of the vagus nerve per se, meaning working with consistent practices that help to safety regulate the system helps re-regulate that dorsal ventral side of the vagus nerve, because we don't want to always be in ventral. We don't always want to just be in calm rest and digest mode. There's a purpose to that danger recognition. There's times where we need that like sympathetic nervous system turned on, but what can happen with people who have chronic health conditions, especially autoimmune, or just people who have dealt with chronic stress load on the body. So you can kind of get stuck. We have a lot of clients with chronic stress and what it generally presents as one of the ways that it can present is issues with the gut. And Mm -hmm. 
wanted to ask you from your practice for your clients who would describe themselves as as chronically stressed what are the symptoms or how does this physically present in gut problems yeah it can be presenting anywhere from acid reflux stomach pain and random like bouts of stomach pain where you're like this doesn't have any association to anything it can present as lower abdominal pain and cramping. It can present as constipation or loose stool. We actually tend to see, based on the research, that loose stool is a little more common in acute states of stress or acute stressors layered on chronic stress versus the person who deals with more of a chronic stress load. Constipation is a bit more common, probably due to that person kind of learning to tense and brace themselves. Um, it's I, I could really go off about constipation and women and my theories about just like why so many women deal with constipation. It's such an issue and it, it affects it affects everything. I have clients as well, Megan. I, I always find this an interesting uh, kind of dichotomy where they'll say to me, Caroline, I've, I've got IBS or I feel really, really constipated, but they would describe themselves as not being stressed. Mm-hmm. And what I often find is that they've gotten so used to the chronic stress signaling and they've got so used to being in that state in some ways that it's become their new normal. So this is a phenomena I see very often and I agree with you because and my reasoning is because we're in a society that teaches us not to be in tune with our body and not to listen and work with it. And what I mean by that is when we're tired, go drink coffee. When, you know, you have a late work night, just work, work or be your way through and ignore that you need to sleep. When you're hungry, ignore it. You should be fasting longer, you know, toxic narratives that diet culture has brought. And I think women in particular are sensitive to it because so many women just want to do all the things like we're mothers. We're also working. We're doing so much to support the people around us. And, um, What can also happen is women who have dealt with any or men uh, eating disorders, uh, that system has actually really numbed out and dysregulated itself, where over time, ignoring your hunger, ignoring cues from your body, really the body does this compensation mechanism to this cry wolf and is like, all right, I'm not going to give signals anymore. You're not listening to them, so I don't need to give them. So I tend to find that in my clients who do similar to you feel like I'm not stressed. I don't have stress because they've been functioning at their normal and their baseline, which has just been really chronically high stress load for the majority of their life. And they've maybe been taught to numb out and ignore it. Yeah. For women in that position, obviously they, they don't think something is wrong, which is, is sometimes they the issue there is that it isn't normal for you to be having digestive discomfort. It isn't normal Mm -hmm. to be dealing with this. And what I often find is that it has a huge knock-on effect elsewhere, because if you are, if you can't go to the bathroom and you feel bloated and uncomfortable, it has an effect Mm -hmm. on your mood, right? It has an effect on your ability to focus. It has an effect on your relationship because when you go and your tummy is out to here, you don't feel sexy. You don't want to get into, you know, you don't sex night with your partner when you're like oh my goodness like it's not you don't want to exercise or you don't want to exercise to a great intensity there's a huge ripple effect there Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it affects so much and you know I do think that's where 
for certain clients, testing can be helpful because sometimes people need a data point to kind of light a fire under their tush, for lack of better words, um, when there isn't the recognition of, you know, I'm under incredible amounts of stress. Now, I like to remind people, though, too, that if they are having symptoms like GI symptoms, that's their body's way of trying to communicate to them and tell them, hey, I need you to listen. There's something going on here. Like the stress bucket's overflowing. And so almost changing the perspective where I think a lot of women come to me and they're so frustrated with the symptoms. I like to kind of shift it and say, hey, your body is being a really clear communicator and good on you that you're listening to it now and you're honoring that you need more support because there's something going on. So once we embrace, we use that word carefully, once we embrace the symptoms because we're being signaled that something needs to change, Mm -hmm. Do you have any, and I know this will be incredibly difficult to summarize or to, um, but do you have any non-negotiables that you recommend ladies in particular start Mm -hmm. to bring in for, to improve their, their digestion or their gut health, or are there really common symptoms that you address via diet? Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'll say for the first part of that question, a big non-negotiable is incorporating my rule of threes at mealtimes. And so what that means is it's three deep breaths, three times per meal, sitting down when you eat, slowing down, thinking about the process of chewing, thinking and just noticing with curiosity, do I chew and swallow whole bites of food or can I try to chew about eight to 10 to 12 chews per bite, because you're doing your gut a little favor when you're really using your mouth. Our gut starts in our mouth. Our digestion starts in our mouth. So if we're rushing through the process or we're sucking down a smoothie without some element of chewing, slowing the process down again, this is like mindfulness or mindful eating at its finest, because what mindful eating teaches is getting present bringing in the sensory experience, noticing what's going on. It's very different than intuitive eating. I'm actually not a huge fan clubber of intuitive eating. I'm really big on mindful eating because it engages the body and gets you into the body of what's going on versus living in the mind where most of us are either uh, living in the past or future tripping going forward. So the rule of threes is three breaths before you start eating three breaths sometime in the middle of the meal, put your fork down, take three deep breaths, and then three deep breaths towards the end of the meal. So it's nine total. And it's a little hack for your nervous system to tell the body, knock on the door of, hey, we're getting into eating mode. We're getting into rest and digest. I want to optimize all this beautiful food I'm putting into my body, optimize the breakdown and the absorption of it. Because one thing I find so commonly in practice is, optimizing digestion is a very important starting ground. And most people have some level of suboptimal digestion going on when they've dealt with stress for a long period of time. So it is why I'm quite passionate about mindfulness and breathing at meals and bitters, which we can talk a little more about bitter foods and bitter tinctures and why that is a wonderful broad spectrum um, thing to consider when it comes to supporting digestion, because when we're not breaking down our food properly, we've got large particles of food floating around where they shouldn't be. Things hang out too long in parts of the stomach or the intestine. And if you picture it like the trash that hasn't been taken out for a few days, 
it can really dysregulate the system and cause things like overgrowth later on, um, or lots of bloat, gas, pain, um, constipation, because it's mucking up the motility system of the body. And what motility is, is it's the cleansing, sweeping wave of the gut that functions best when we're having some level of mindful intention around meal times. And I like to say, mindful meals, mindful snacks, instead of grazing and snacking all day, because grazing and picking and snacking on food all day, we don't activate that cleansing wave at all. We have to activate that a couple times a day. And it only activates when we're in a gut rested state, meaning not eating, drinking water. So this is a Goldilocks effect, right, Caroline? Because I don't ever want someone to think I should just be fasting all day long. But this does mean giving your gut little breaks between eating increments of like two to three hours where your gut is resting. It's activating the cleansing wave, the motility wave, and it's far more supported in the long run than if we're doing that little grazing picking throughout the day. It also really mucks with our satiety levels. That's such an interesting point you've raised, actually. And I'm sure you could do an entire podcast just on this. But I think there is a lot of mixed messaging around fasting, resting, this resting the system for want of a better word, uh, versus, you know, eating nice and regularly throughout the day to maintain energy. I know that it's very personal. And I know it's a very personal experience for a lot of the ladies I work with. We always take into account, you know, things like exercise, timing, um, all of the important factors. But I think there is a lot of miscommunication around the, the optimal time to be, or the optimal frequency, I should say, to be eating during the day. Do you have any rules of thumb or, or guidance? Yeah, I would love to give some specific guidance there because I see this so commonly in practice. So there's a little bit of individualization here, depending on your age. So what I'll first say is originally a few years back when keto and intermittent fasting kind of really blew up, at least in the U S but I'm, I'm sure also in the UK, when that was blowing up, the studies and research that was originally done around intermittent fasting, uh, come to find out now, was really done in men and postmenopausal women. And so the problem being, primarily my population and a lot of the population of people just consuming health information is women around preconception age, women who are either pre or perimenopausal, and less commonly the postmenopausal women, not always. So interestingly enough, it kind of ensued this toxic pattern around women intermittent fasting, waiting all morning to eat, just living off of coffee in the morning or doing like a keto, you know, bulletproof coffee. And what happened was a lot of dysregulation in the adrenals. So the stress organs of the body, as well as the thyroid really metabolically dysregulating mainly because this is one of our best safety regulation systems to nourish our body and break the fast when we wake up. So I always recommend women who are in that preconception age, especially if you're trying to get pregnant um, and premenopausal, unless your doctor has told you otherwise, thinking about getting a nourishing breakfast, a full breakfast in within the first maximum one to two hours of waking, because a lot of women too tend to have like little tiny breakfast, bigger dinner, because we're like compensating for fasting all day. And we want to kind of flip that a little bit. So um, in the woman who's postmenopausal, especially if they're trying to keep in mind 
metabolic changes and maybe noticing some metabolic changes, there is some good data to say that some gentle intermittent fasting for that woman and lower carb eating for that woman can be beneficial because of the loss of estrogen, because estrogen ultimately is really helping us with glucose metabolism, helping us to, you know, store our, our sugar into the cell and use it for fuel. And so we find that more women struggle with insulin resistance and blood sugar dysregulation after menopause. I'm sure you've seen this. So I tend to say, higher fiber dense carbs, uh, primarily as a focus for that postmenopausal woman, and maybe pushing more of the carb density to earlier in the day for that postmenopausal woman. And that woman thinking about gut rest overnight, which I like to call gut rest instead of intermittent fasting, um, somewhere for them in the 12 to 13 max 14 hour range. Again, this is individualized. This is something to notice in your body, how it makes you feel, because if you're doing a 14 hour fast, because someone told you to, or you listen to this podcast and you feel God awful energy wise, stop doing it. Like, listen to your body, let's push it and maybe try for the 12 hour window. Now for the woman who's preconception before menopause, uh, having again, some level of gut rest overnight where we're just promoting that body resting, absorbing nutrients, um, outputting melatonin overnight to help you with that. Really, I think of melatonin as like the repair restoration healing hormone. It's There's so much good data and research coming out right now. Um, Dr. Deanna Minnick is a functional medicine dietitian in the States who's doing a lot of cool research. She has a whole research paper on melatonin and how you can use light to optimize it. So uh, less, less or so about supplementing, but more about just uh, our own innate melatonin output and how we can work with it. Um, but for that woman, the younger woman, thinking about about a 12 hour, maybe somewhere in the 10 to 12 hour gut rest overnight. So not eating super late into the evening, uh, but being mindful that like you need to get a good meal and nourishing breakfast in first thing in the morning, especially if you are a woman who's dealt with chronic stress, who's had ongoing GI issues. This is part of nourishment and there's cool science to it too. We're stimulating something called the gastrocolic reflex when we eat breakfast. It's this cool little reflex that lets us know when our stomach contents are filling up and it triggers motility and movement of the other organs to move things along. So there's a lot to it of really our why. And what I should mention to Caroline that I think is fascinating from for the people who are the science nerds like me, when we talked about mindful eating and rule of threes, breath work at meals, the signaling of getting the brain involved in eating and really becoming present is called the cephalic phase of eating. And that upregulates digestive secretion output, meaning stomach acid, bioflow, saliva, uh, digestive enzymes by 20%. So just getting into that brain phase of, Hey body, we're about to eat. We're getting into the food, you know, realm of our day upregulates that whole digestive secretion process. So important for what I mentioned with most people are really struggling as we age with high stress with digestive optimization. I think honestly, you've blown my mind and I think you will have blown everyone's mind with, um, with some of that input. I actually want to ask you a little bit about my fasting window, which I maybe won't bore everyone with here. One thing I do want to say is anyone who's listening to this podcast who eats their lunch, particularly in front of their laptop, this is one I see all of the time 
If you do one thing from this recording, please close the screen, put the phone away and take this approach to, and bring this approach into your eating habits because I couldn't agree more with you. We don't even look at our food anymore. No, and I no. have been a victim of this in the past, as in it's there as fuel, but we're not even being mindful of the fuel that we're consuming. Our mind is in the next email. We're not even looking at the thing that's going into our mouth. And I do firmly believe that there, there has to be an experience that goes along with our meals. We need to feel connected with what we're consuming. And a lot of, I believe a lot of satiety is in, is around looking at the food that we're, that we're okay. consuming. I'll say to my clients, and I'm, I'm sure you would never use this phrase, Meg, but I don't have half-assed meals. And by that, I mean, I don't like looking at a solitary chicken breast on my, on my plate. I don't like looking at, to me, Amen. It's, how much can we have in abundance? How full can we make a nutritious and a nutrient dense can we make our plates instead of what am I cutting back on? Irrespective mm. of fat loss phase or not. But a lot of my satiety has always been linked with, with my, what I'm looking at. And if I can trick my mind into feeling full and uh, insatiated, my body follows suit. So I couldn't agree more with, with what you said. You've talked about the how, the, the how we consume our meals. So the, the experience of it. Do you have any food groups or general food types that you really advocate we should be including and that a lot of us are missing within our diet? Yeah, I always like to start with people thinking about bitters, bitter foods. And I talk a little more deeply about this in my cookbook. So I, I launched a cookbook last year that um, I love what you're saying, Caroline, because it speaks my language around really like this abundance mindset around food. And um, my cookbook is called How to Glow Gluten-Free because, and I say the, the tagline is taking an abundance mindset to a diet of restriction because gluten-free feels very restrictive. And I love to same with you. Think about what we're adding rather than everyone wants to know, like, what are the worst foods to have and what do we take away? And I think it's just so important to think again, like working with, uh, you know, our body and our brains in this way that feels additive. Um, and so bitter foods, I'll explain kind of some examples of what I mean by this. I talk about this a lot on my Instagram, bitter foods or digestive bitters in the herbal tincture form, which is basically just um, an herbal tincture of uh, infused herbs that are known to be bitter that stimulate digestive receptors. So what bitter foods or bitter tinctures do is we actually have the most receptors lining our GI tract for bitters more so than any other food taste like umami, sweet, salty. And so it's the most stimulating to digestive motility, helping to support digestive secretion output, and um, on my blog, on my website, I have a whole deep dive blog for the science nerd on research studies to support what bitters really do. They help regulate blood sugar and balance blood sugar. There's some studies showing even like weight loss and metabolic support, um, liver support, gently giving a nudge to the liver to help, uh, you know, detox uh, anything that's built up from an endocrine disruptor standpoint in the body. Um, but for me, since I'm digestive health specialized, I'm so big on getting people to ingest bitters because it really lights up your own innate digestive secretion output, meaning enzymes, bile flow, and stomach acid. And so many of us are struggling with that. I just see that as a common thread, either when I'm foreseeing a client or on their testing, on their stool tests. So things like radicchio, endive, radish, 
raw cacao is considered a bitter cranberries so not the sugar-coated cranberries but like dried cranberries or getting the whole ones and making like a cranberry sauce um broccoli family vegetables i'm a big fan of broccoli sprouts because they do so much good for estrogen metabolism but then also for giving us that bitter um fresh dill is considered a bitter so many of these foods as you hear me talk about them you may feel for some of us like Oh, interesting. I don't eat radicchio or endive or frise very often. That's less common for me. And that is a common thread that I see. These are foods that are typically less common in the food supply because most of us want sweet and salty. We don't want bitter, but it's a beautiful thing to add because it really lights up our diet, our, our taste buds and can help with things like sugar cravings because it's giving that sensory taste bud system something else to kind of munch on per se. And from a gut health perspective, it's diversifying the sources of fiber because most of these foods are fiber dense that you're exposing your gut microbiome to. And if there's any take home message you take from this in terms of gut health hacks, there's a lot of focus in gut health on probiotics and supplements. I am such a fan of where the research is rock solid, which is diversified sources of fiber in the diet. The more that you can eat sources of prebiotics and just diversified fibers in the diet, getting you out of your comfort zone of just having, say, carrots as your veggie every day is one of the best things you can do to really give your gut and your healthy gut bacteria this quote unquote food so that the good gut bacteria sticks and survives and flourishes. Nick, do you agree with the 30 plant-based foods per week? You know, I, I'm I'm familiar with that. I think that's a beautiful thing to think about. What I will say is on the other side of the coin, I'm big on this like Goldilocks effect in health because I think there's an element of people going far one way or the other. And sometimes when someone's trying to meet a certain amount of fruits or vegetable or fiber goal, if they have a lot of gut issues going on, like constipation, bloating, and gas, Sometimes it puts them overboard. And so I I had a client recently who was dealing with a lot of bloating and we're working on some deeper gut health work. And she was eating like three cups of raw cruciferous veggies a day. So like raw cabbage uh, at a meal, at one meal time, just because she was trying to be mindful of like estrogen metabolism and hormone balance. But um, for me, when we're working with gut health issues, we really want to be mindful of kind of hacking the food to make it a little more digestible. So someone like that, I'm actually coaching them to make the portion size of vegetable a little smaller, uh, cook the veggies a bit more often, really work on chewing, add spices so that it helps the breakdown really from an Ayurvedic standpoint, food breakdown, absorb, digest a little bit better. Um, so again, it feel sometimes it does feel a little textbooky to me to say like, meet this goal of vegetables and fruits versus, okay, let's get diversity in. I'm a huge fan of, I think if we look at that rule of thumb and say 30 different without having like a portion control on it of like, let's expose your microbiome to, you know, 30 different plant foods weekly, but that could be just a little small handful of broccoli sprouts. And that could be a little small side of cooked Brussels. You don't need to be eating these copious quantities. Yeah. I think we love a, we love a metric, don't we? We love some, we love a target. We love something to hit, but I suppose you see this time and time again, it's impossible to 
give everyone a blanket statement to follow and and as you said there are outliers in in yes. all of these recommendations which I think is important to acknowledge but generally I would like to see more people eating more veggies if we're going to simplify, totally. if we're going to simplify it right down it would be great if we can be getting a little bit more diversity and a little bit more frequency of intake too and yes I don't know if you see this but sometimes when I do a deep dive into a client's nutrition I'll find there, there is, there is greenery in there. There is color in there, but it's for one meal a day. Yes. It's even meal, right. Totally. I love that you brought this up because one thing I like to talk about is, okay, how can we shake up the breakfast a little bit and get some veggies in or some plant fiber at breakfast? Cause most people aren't doing that. Not always, or maybe they're getting a little fruit, but even little hacks, like you can put some frozen organic cauliflower rice in a smoothie. And that's a great cruciferous veggie that you can do again, like half a cup, small amount, but sneak it into the veggie. You're just going to into the smoothie and you're going to just taste the fruit, or maybe you're doing a little side of arugula and some lemon and olive oil, along with your eggs and toast in the morning, or are you Kate that arugula that's rocket? <laughs> oh, rocket. I love it. I love it. And by the way, that's a bitter. So rocket's a bitter. So if somebody Wait, is a bitter, like that, oh, that's my favorite. So if I had a salad option, I would definitely go down the the rocket would be my would be my go-to yes exactly so getting more more variety into our different meals I think we we try and put so much pressure on that evening meal it's generally bigger it's the sometimes the only one I see with any greenery Meg I want to ask you um quickly because I know this is an area you're particularly passionate about you've used two words today in regards to going gluten-free mm. one that the words gluten-free tend to have these connotations of restriction mm -hmm. that it's what I can't have what's going to be taken away from me and the mm -hmm. way like to flip it is to live this abundant I take this abundant approach what can I have instead or what can I uh, what can my diet look like what am I set to gain from going down this gluten-free route I have a number of clients who do uh, have gluten-free protocols but have had this mindset around this is going to really affect me negatively. What advice mm -hmm. do you have for people in this position who are maybe presented with the idea that they should go gluten-free for health reasons? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There's a lot here because I do think um, acknowledging and honoring that there can be this emotional component whenever someone is going through um, a diagnosis or a big change that might feel difficult. And I always want to acknowledge that and urge that person to get some level of support and really support that makes it feel fun. So that was some of my purpose in my cookbook is that I can really hand that over and say, Hey, this is all the stuff you can have. And this is all stuff I eat all the time and super delicious and yummy and will make you feel good in terms of your digestive health. Um, so I think leaning on that, when you do start to go gluten-free, if you notice that that's supportive for you, leaning on how it makes you feel and really leaning into that of like, Oh my gosh, that is my intention in this, this really is my why it makes me feel so good. I have better energy levels. I can show up more for the people around me. And by the way, there is a way to go gluten-free and choose a bunch of replacement foods and processed foods where the gluten-free industry in some capacity has replaced gluten with sugar and crappy ingredients versus let's think about the food that was just, I call them the OGs of gluten-free. They've been gluten-free all along. 
rice, potato, you know, that's, a, that's been gluten-free all along. It's just been hanging out there. We don't need to label it as like, oh, now I'm finally eating that. It's like, you're probably eating it anyways. Uh, if you actually look at, okay, where does gluten really show up in my diet? For most people, it's showing up in the form of bread and it's showing up in the form of, uh, you know, eating outside of the home, vacations and treats, things like, you know, those like one-off occasions when someone's having a treat. So um, I do, by the way, have a sweet tooth. So I'm very passionate about getting people baking foods that actually are fully in alignment with their, their course of maybe choosing a lifestyle that's lower or less or no added sugar. Um, so that you can feel like you could have, you know, like a muffin every day if you wanted to. So my cookbook does have some recipes that use something called tiger nut flour. Are you familiar with tiger nut flour? So it's a root vegetable flour. You can get it on things like nuts.com. You can get it on Thrive Market. You can also get it on Amazon. I just don't tend to always push them. Um, and it's a root vegetable. I found this early in my autoimmune journey because I was struggling a little bit more with like lots of nut-based foods. And just from an allergy standpoint, and tiger nut has this natural sweetness to it and it's a prebiotic fiber rich food so it's really fun to bake with because you're getting this nice prebiotic fiber density but has a little light sweetness to it so my banana muffins my salted banana muffins chocolate chip muffins in the cookbook are um, no added sugar just sweetened with banana totally aligns with someone's lifestyle where maybe they're like i just want more whole foods less sweeteners less additives less sugars um so yeah, I hope I hope that helps in in terms of I always want people to feel like they can get support and then also communicating that to a loved one or a friend where you feel like even if they're not going gluten-free with you, you feel like you have this kind of accountability partner and someone you can share what you're doing with because a lot of my journey in the early days I felt really alone and that can be a debilitating part of doing something that feels like a drastic life change. I think it can be difficult when one of you needs to or is going gluten-free when you're in a partnership when you're a couple when one person is doing it and feels that it may impact on the other person in that in that relationship totally. I was speaking to a client about this recently who's going gluten-free for um for health reasons and I really like the idea of thinking about all the foods that you love anyway all of the mm favorite meals and how can you tweak adapt and uh, make some smart swaps is the phrase that I like to use to actually change these to be gluten-free rather than thinking oh my goodness I'll never be able to have x again I'll never be able to have I'm gonna have to create this whole new diet I don't believe personally that it needs to be that way I've never had to or gone gluten-free myself I will put my hands up and say but I think the foods that we choose to eat anyway are never typically not not bread we don't really have much bread and things in the diet or anything high and high in gluten um but for clients who do do this i do suggest that they try and adopt this okay how can i just tweak it's not an overhaul it's a it's a tweak and i think reality mm. can really help i love that i have resonated with that in my own life and uh pizza has always been a favorite of mine so like in my pizza? yeah in my cookbook i have a pizza recipe i post on my instagram all the time different crusts and things that i'm trying because i i love to just like home make a crust and use a recipe there's so many amazing bloggers one of my favorite is paleo running mama for anybody who is someone who likes recipes and just wants to get cooking and baking um she's great because she does have so many of those replacements where you're like oh my god i love a muffin or i want to bake cupcakes for a birthday party um so easy to just again like make that little slide with a couple of different flowers 
Yeah, I think, I don't know if it's the same in the US, but definitely here, it's never been easier to have a dietary requirement. Like ask for things, be really insistent in restaurants, open your eyes actually to areas of the supermarket or we can't go to a bakery or anywhere here locally that doesn't have gluten-free options on on the menu and, and doesn't have more availability than we've ever had before. And I think it will go increasingly that way. I think you guys, to just honor you guys, I think you guys are doing better than we are here. I haven't been over to the UK, but I've heard from many of my clients that it's actually a lot easier to eat gluten-free and eat out over there. That's interesting. I was Canada-based, not yet, but it was, Canada, they were pretty good, actually, I have to say, but I, the UK, I never know whether it's just London, because London has its own little bubble that tends to be mm -hmm. 10 chapters ahead of a lot of other areas even in the UK but we're really fortunate here I will say so it's um it's encouraging it's definitely moving in the right direction um Meg it's been fantastic to have you on today and to share your expertise with us tell us more about where people can find you tell us more about your bitters your cookbook where everyone can can find your resources Thank you. I'm so grateful to you. This has been a lovely conversation. Um, I am at Grounded Nourish on Instagram. People can find me there. I post a lot in real time. Um, I'm hosting a retreat this weekend, so I'll be posting little snippets from this retreat for women. Um, and then uh, my website is www.groundednourish.com. And then I am launching a company called Zhuzh Bitters. Uh, it's a digestive bitters for mocktails and cocktails this month. So it's actually launching uh, for pre-sale this Black Friday. Um, we will be sending you some, Caroline, for you to try because I want you to be able to taste test these. These were born out of my sober curious journey, um, really wanting to zhuzh up a boring drink at the time where I would say, oh, I just want to judge this up. This isn't fun to just have sparkling water. And so because I've been passionate about bitters throughout as kind of a running thread as a digestive health expert, I've um, always loved digestive bitters and have used other companies for many years, but was a bit frustrated that there's not actually one in the U.S. that is uh, safe and tested for celiac disease. Um, I've inquired with companies and kind of found my ways around it, but I've always loved to put digestive bitters into my mocktails to add this element of kind of an herbal bitter taste uh, whereas a lot of mocktails, even though they're on the rise, a lot of them are like sugar bombs. They're just loaded with sugar. They're sometimes worse for you than the alcoholic beverage. And so for me, I wanted to create something that really brought this fun element to my drink that supports my gut health that I know is doing something again, like good for me. It's additive. Whereas I always felt like alcohol was kind of putting me a few steps back with my gut health and autoimmune. And that brings this experiment, this experience of, feeling included in the drinking experience. When I started to pull away from alcohol, I kind of felt like, oh, I'm feeling left out. I feel awkward. I feel like I'm the weird one who's not drinking with everyone. This kind of brings that beverage experience back to the person, whether you're drinking less or you're not drinking at all to be like, I'm here, I'm participating. I'm in this community and this is fun. I'm just, my mouth is hanging open because we've literally just had a conversation about, uh, with another guest about going sober curious. So it's so it's oh. prominent in my, in my mind. And I love that you're putting something out there that is making this and really opening up that conversation. It's going to be something that we're going to be speaking about more and more, more and more people are interested in, in living a sober, a sober lifestyle, but making it accessible, I think is half the battle and to have more products on the market is is amazing to hear so 
I'm really, really excited about that. And um, Meg, we'll link all of your details in the show notes below this episode. Cool. So if anyone wants to find you, they can, of course, reach out. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you. So much information in this week's episode. I want to say a huge thank you to Meg for joining us. All of the resources that we've mentioned and all of Meg's details are in the show notes below. So if you, someone in your inner circle, you a loved one is following a gluten-free protocol at the moment, maybe they've expressed some challenges that they're facing around that, do send them this episode and some of those resources. Put them in touch with Meg and her content and hopefully we'll make that journey that little bit easier. That is the mission of health hacks above everything we want to invite uh, we want to create and provide apologies as much value as we possibly can absolutely free. That is what we do every single week and if you love what we do on the podcast and you found any of the episodes valuable in your own journey, it would mean the world to me if you could spend just two minutes of your day scrolling down on the podcast platform of choice. You're probably listening to me on Apple or Spotify. If you scroll down and you hit either the follow or the subscribe button, we will arrive in your podcast inbox every single week and you never have to search from us again. You'll get all of the latest episodes. We've got some wonderful episodes coming up, particularly around the Christmas, the New Year period. So subscribe there and we will arrive to you every single week. If you feel that you've been inspired, you want to make a change, you want to make some changes to your nutrition, you would love someone to look at your current diet. This is what we do with every single person who comes through our coaching program and the Lifestyle Project. We look at your diet on an individual basis. If you think this would be beneficial to you, you're not sure if you're eating enough plants, you're not sure if you're getting enough color in there, you want some advice on how you can tweak and improve those um, those nutritional decisions as we discussed in today's podcast, get in touch, join the Lifestyle Project, and we will do a deep dive nutritional review with you. I will personally look at your your nutrition, your a couple of days in the life of you and, uh, and analyze and give you feedback on that, um, on your diet. So if you would like to kickstart your health and well-being journey, nutrition is something that you are conscious of, maybe it's been a bit of a barrier for a while, get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. And start now. Don't wait until January. Don't wait until the new year. Um, December is actually a massive month for us and our clients. We spend a lot of time mapping out and planning for, for the year ahead. And what that means is that we don't waste any time at the start of at the start of a new year. We won't waste any time at the start of 2024. We'll be slotting straight into their, their plans, their protocols, and their goals for the year ahead. So if you would like to be someone who also takes action, do it now. Don't wait until then. Um, till after Christmas. Okay. Thank you so much for joining us on Health Hacks and we'll catch up next week.